Long Beach Sermons, visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Hi, everyone. If I don't happen to know you yet, my name is Brenna Rubio, and I am one of the co-pastors here at City Church of Long Beach. And a special welcome to our friends who are with us on Zoom this morning. I feel a little extra funny for some reason right morning, talk, you know, just talking to the camera, but I know you're there, and we're glad you're here. Uh, and it's, it's just good to be here together for a Sunday morning. Um, if you are here, it is like your first time here this morning, you know, we just want to say thank you. It's really brave to go to a new church. Uh, one of the things that, you know, just to help you start to feel a little bit at ease, just know where the bathrooms are. Uh, we do have a bathroom that is right inside this door here and up the stairs to the left. There are also a couple over on this corner right here for those of you who are here in person. Those of you on Zoom, I'm sure you know where your bathrooms where your bathrooms are. So that's good. That's good. Like you, you just have all the comforts of home. For everybody else, you know, maybe you're just kind of settling in here and we do want this to feel like a homey space and knowing where the bathrooms are. First step. Key first step. Uh, yeah, we... We're, we've been in a sermon series all about the book of Psalms and thinking about uh, just how we go through seasons of faith, seasons of disorientation, orientation, reorientation. You know, there's just a lot, a lot of things that go on in the spiritual life. Um, and it actually, there are things that go on for our kids too. So one of the things that we love to do here at City Church of Long Beach is that as we gather each Sunday, we like to pray over our kids. And one of our fearless Kidman leaders, Emma, she is going to pray for our kiddos today. So if you have a little one next to you that you wanna hold on to, yeah, go ahead and clap for Emma. Because you know, some of you are just like, oh, praying in front of people. So it's like fearless of Emma to be up here praying and then also to spend time with our wonderful kids. So yeah, thank you, Emma, for doing that. Good morning, church. Let us pray together. Holy One, we lift up this morning the youngest of those among us. Help us to hold them in love. Let them be assured, deeply assured of their goodness. And when life is strange or weird or embarrassing, let them be even more assured of how good and wonderfully made they are. And in those hard times, let them know that they can lean on you as an endless source of strength and comfort and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Emma. I don't know about any of you, but when Emma was praying for when life is weird and embarrassing, I was going, I'm feeling that prayer this morning. It is not just for our kiddos. Kiddos, if you would like to head off with Emma, you're welcome to stay with your parents, but if you want to do story, craft, all that good stuff, Emma is leading the way, and we just know that we like you as we send you away. <laughs> Well, I'm so excited because this morning we get to hear from a special friend of ours, our friend Donna Berkland, who is already at work. Yeah, you can cheer for, for Donna. Yeah. For those of you 
who don't know, just a quick introduction, uh, Donna and her husband Charles, they actually live in Orange County and they are busy at work along with a big group of friends and other leaders planting a church in Orange County that is going to be just radically welcoming, especially oriented towards people of color and queer folks, being just a friendly, open and inclusive space, uh, which we are just incredibly excited for. So to have Donna here preaching for us this morning as a special friend of City Church of Long Beach, we are thrilled. So Donna, would you come up and lead us? Let's welcome her one more time. Woo! All right. Oh, that was so easy. I walked, uh, Dave told me if I walk past the speaker, you'll start to hear me. This is my first time using this type of headset. Can you hear me? Okay, great. Give me one second. I have to put my notes up and um, because if I don't, then, and I don't clip them properly, then they'll fly away because it's very windy today. Oh man, so good. So good. All right, friends. Well, it's funny because Two weeks ago, I was talking to Bill White, actually, and we were actually going to co-preach this sermon together. And as I was talking to him, uh, he was telling me about the 50 other sermons he was doing this month. Right, Bill? It's like 50, maybe, give or take 50. I'm just kidding. He was doing a lot, not just for City Church. And I was just like, you know what, buddy? Uh, do you want me to take this one for the team? And he's like, sure, sure. And uh, so I decided, or we decided, that I'll just go ahead and preach this by myself and kind of one of the values we have at Safe Harbor, which is the church that Brenna was talking about that we're planting, and one of the values I see here at City Church is shared leadership. And so oftentimes we co-preach because we want to share leadership. Um, but equally, one of our values at Safe Harbor and also I see at City Church is rest. And so, Bill, I hope this is a way for you to rest today. I can preach and you can rest. How's that sound? <laughs> Great. All right, friends. So as Brenda told us, we were talking about orientation, disorientation, and reorientation of our faith. And um, something that Bill and Brenna talked about last week was disorientation. And just for, so that we're not confused, I'm going to use the word deconstruction simultaneously with this disorientation, just because that word I resonate with more, or I feel like I uh, use that word more often. And so you might hear me say de deconstruction, and what I mean is also disorientation. And as they were talking, they talked a lot about certainty, they, right? They talked a lot about how we, uh, when we deconstruct, oh no. Okay, we enter into this state of uh, uncertainty, and that's where we get to really delve, and this is what they pointed to, the mystery of God, or the mystery, and how important that is for our, our faith, and how important that is for us. And this week, I'm also going to be talking about disorientation, but I'm going to pose a question for me and for us as I continue, and that question is, what is even the point of deconstruction? Like, why are we doing this? What's the point? And to help us get reading through uh, the book of Psalms, as Brenna pointed out. And so I'm going to go ahead and invite my friend Isabel. Isabel's going to get us started. And she's going to read Psalm 73, 1 through 20. So come on up, Isabel. Let's give her a round of applause. I think you could use that one. This one? I think so. Yeah? Yes. Okay. All right. Psalm 73, 1 through 20. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. 
Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. People of God, this is the word of God. All right, thank you so much, Isabel. Really appreciate you. All right, so the book of Psalms, just give like a little brief overview of the book of Psalms and how it caters to this chapter specifically. But in Hebrew, the book of Psalms is actually called Tehillim, which means songs of praise. And in uh, the book of Psalms, there are actually five books in Psalms, or five different sections. And chapter 73, the one that Isabel just you can hear me. Sometimes it goes in and out, right? Is it all right? Okay. Do you want me to take the mic? All right. Just take the Can you still hear me? Great. All right. Thank you. <laughs> uh, okay. So there's five books in the book of Psalms and uh, chapter 73 is actually the third book or the start of this third book in Psalms. And these are called songs of praise. And in book three, these uh, Psalms are typically attributed to this person named Asaph. This person named Asaph. And so that can mean uh, one of three things. It could mean that Asaph is the one who wrote these songs. It could mean that Asaph is transcribing these psalms for uh, the King David. Or it could also mean that an Asaphite, so someone who follows Asaph, is the person who wrote this song. And that could also mean that since it's so ambiguous, it could have been a woman. Okay, so it could be someone who, uh, you know, had to use a pseudonym, <laughs> which is often what women have to do. Uh, but for the sake of confusion, and I like to name authors, I'm going to go ahead and call the author of this Psalm Asaph, and I'm going to refer to him throughout. Uh, so this is attributed to Asaph. So what's interesting about these poems is that they're liturgical, the ones that Asaph wrote. And so what that means is that they're used in the temple of Jerusalem, um, and as they're being used, they're being used in a liturgical way. So they're doing it during worship. And what's interesting is as we're reading these Psalms, I'm sure, as Isabel kind of alluded to, right, it didn't feel very praiseworthy, right? <laughs> These are called, you know, the Psalms of praise, but at the same time, I didn't feel any praise. I felt the opposite of happy, right? And what's interesting, though, is if you look closely, and we didn't have Isabel read it today, but at the end of this psalm and at the end of most psalms, you'll see a praise to God, and that's supposed to signify that these are uh, psalms of praise. So 
what it says at the end of chapter 73 is, I have made the sovereignty, Lord, my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So even though we went through this kind of this journey that wasn't so happy, at the end, there's always a praise. And that's just to signify um, that is a song of praise. So with that, though, I find it incredibly ironic that this is called a song of praise when I'm reading through this, or Isabel was reading through it, and I realized, okay, this is not about praise. This is about Asaph or someone who's writing this feeling uh, very envious of his enemies. It says in uh, even verse two through three, it says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, what's interesting is Asaph is uh, jealous and angry because his enemies are prospering. It says here in verse eight, with arrogance, they threaten oppression. And then in verse 12, always free of care, they go about amassing wealth. Now, I resonate a lot with Asaph here and feeling very frustrated when I see people taking advantage of others. Uh, at the expense of them amassing wealth or them prospering. And so I can totally understand why Asaph is angry here. I get angry a lot as an Enneagram 8, and so I can definitely resonate with this. And I think it's really important to note that it's okay to be angry, not just okay, but important to uh, talk about and to enact change when you see injustice. But What's really interesting is as you continue on with this passage, I started to find myself disconnecting with ASAP, and that was actually in verses 18 through 20. In 18 through 20, it states, surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin, how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by tears. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And I get this sense that Asaph is, I think, manifesting his own frustration through assuming that God also wants harm on his enemies who are treating him and everyone else terribly. Um, but that doesn't really feel like the right thing, right? I feel uncomfy wishing harm on my enemies. And I think there's something we can learn um, from Jesus, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, I wanted to kind of share how this connects to deconstruction, or at least my journey with deconstruction. So I couldn't help but resonate a lot with Asaph here. Uh, when it comes to deconstruction, it can be absolutely lonely, right? It can feel like people are against you, that you're doing something wrong, that you're kind of ostracized if you grow up in the church or if you've been in the church and have done this or been honest about your deconstruction. And so a lot of us can feel a lot like Asaph here. You're trying to do the right thing, but it just feels like it's not really working out for you. Your enemies, quote unquote, are prospering and you are stuck here kind of, you know, just getting the bunt of everything. But what's interesting is I actually really uh, really resonated with my experience in 2015 when I was uh, starting to, I would say, so Brenda talked about this in the first sermon. She talked about how uh, deconstruction is typically in waves. 
And so you'll like deconstruct at like 20, and then you might deconstruct some more at 27, and then you know 30s you might start some deconstruction, and 40s and so on. So there's waves. I would say a big wave of deconstruction for me was in 2015. And I was reading a book called Stages of Faith. And in this book, it's really interesting, and I think it's a great book. It talks about how uh, there are stages of faith that are coinciding with the stages of human development. And so it takes those five stages of human development. So this is what happens when you don't clip your, your papers. And so when you, hold on just a second. This is the beauty of City Church, right? We are radically welcoming, but also a little awkward. So, <laughs> so, so you're just going to get some awkwardness in each sermon, and, and luckily we, we are getting some in mind from the papers falling, and the mic's not working. Um, but anyways, so there's five different stages of faith coinciding with five different stages of human development, and they connect how in like stage four they start describing what I think we would call deconstruction how that is just the process of our faith evolving. That's just our process of growing. And I thought this was a great thing. I'm like, oh, this is such a, such a great concept. Um, and this really helps me put to words my experience with faith. But then I took this information and I started talking to my friends while I was still in the evangelical church, talking to my friends who weren't deconstructing. And I realized as I was talking to them, I started to sound really elitist. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'm in stage four. And I think in my mind, I was subtly implying they were in stage three, you know. <laughs> and um, I started, you know, I started, I think, building new systems of hierarchy and building new systems of certainty. And I was even called out by a friend for this. They were like, I think that's kind of elitist, Dada. Like, <laughs> I, think, I think you're starting to sound like you're better than or you think you're better than. And so I had to really step back and ask myself, am I doing this? Is this what I'm doing? And as I was stepping back, I, I realized, okay, yeah, I'm doing this. <laughs> but why? Why am I doing this? And I realized that the core of the issue was is that I felt hurt, right? I felt hurt. I felt that I wasn't being seen, that I wasn't being respected for my journey, that I felt like I was... Uh, not being known. I felt like I was, the more I opened up about my deconstruction journey, the more I found I didn't belong in the church anymore. And I was really hurt and I was angry. But as I alluded to, I think Jesus has a different way for us. Jesus has something different to say about this. And when I think of Asaph, and when I read chapter 73 of the book of Psalms, I really start thinking about that song of the, uh, that story of the prodigal son. And I can't help but realize just how much Asaph reminds me of the older brother in that story. And when I read Psalm 73, I really just sense the spirit of the older son in that, in that chapter. And so for those of you who didn't grow up in Sunday school or don't know the story of the prodigal son, I'll give a quick Sunday school summary of the prodigal son. For you, uh, so Jesus in Luke um, is talking to the religious elite of the time, and he's giving this story of a father and two sons, one older, one younger. And uh, in the story, the younger son takes his inheritance and goes out and spends it all, 
And uh, to the point where he no longer has a place to live, you know, he's tired, you know, and he's like, okay, I need to go back home and ask if I could be a servant now. And so as he's walking home, the father sees him in the distance and runs out to him and just embraces him and was so happy to have his son home. And they throw this big celebration and it just seems all happy and dandy until the older brother makes a comment. And it's like, wait a second, wait a second. I have followed you, father. Like I have done everything right to be a good son. Why, is, why are you celebrating him? I haven't had a party yet. What's going on? And the father says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's countering this assumption to dehumanize those who don't do what's right. And I think liberating ourselves does not mean to create new systems of bondage for others. In fact, I think that the point of what we do, what we do is because we wanna see the humanity and worthiness in all. I really do think that's the purpose behind uh, deconstruction is liberation for all, not just liberation for us, but liberation for all. And so for creating or perpetuating cycles of bondage and more uh, cycles in, of hierarchy and certainty, then it, we're probably missing the point of deconstruction. But then I guess my question for myself is, how do I find liberation through deconstruction? What, what does that even look like if it's not building new systems of hierarchy? If it's not making myself feel better <laughs> or better than others, what is it? And I think the, 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 the purpose of, um, I think the privilege we have of uh, being a part of a community is we get to learn from one another of what that liberation looks like. And so I wanted to take a moment to get off my little pedestal here and bring up someone from Shock, from Safe Harbor, to come and share their story of deconstruction and how that's been liberating for them. And so I'm gonna invite my friend James. So James, come on up. Woo, give him a big hand. I think you can use that one. Is it working? Hello? All right, it works. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, you're welcome. You can, you can hold the mic. You can just speak into it. It's up to you, however way you want. All right, sounds yeah. good. Well, so James, I wanna hear <laughs> just kind of like a little bit of your journey with deconstruction like or your journey with church let's start there yeah yeah okay so i grew up going to church um mostly cover chapels if anybody's familiar with that um and in my teen years i was really really obsessed with apologetics um and in, in my late teen years very early uh young adult years um i became a count counselor i was a church intern small group leader went on a lot of mission trips and i was just really involved in the churches that i went to um, and I had a lot of, a lot of certainty in what I believed and the theologies that I held. Um, and I thought that I had the fear of God in me. Um, I really never wrestled with my faith or had doubts until, of course, I, I did. <laughs> um, and uh, then, you know, in hindsight, I was able to recognize that, wow, like, I didn't have the fear of God in me. I had the fear of man in me. Like, I had so much shame and guilt 
um, that I had to deconstruct or unlearn and unpack um, from my former evangelical faith. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing. It's I, you know, as you probably noticed when you when everyone started laughing that they can resonate with you. <laughs> There's a lot of people here who can resonate with that story. It's like, oh, and then I then it was it didn't make sense, right? That makes me feel great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're in <laughs> good company, alone. James. Yeah. Because no, what you were saying was like very true about uh, deconstruction being a very isolating experience. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, this is great. <laughs> yeah, no, I and I, you know, adding on to that, I'd love to hear more. You so you say this was an isolating. It is an isolating experience. I'd love to hear uh, maybe how, you know how it's been an isolating experience, and maybe you can share a little bit about shock and how that's helped in yeah, the experience. So go ahead definitely. and share some of that. So I began deconstructing, I'd say, around 2016. Um, and that was when, you know, especially politically, things became so much more polarized. Trump kind of entered the political arena, and uh, yeah, all hell broke loose. And, uh, you know, I, I was still very much so a part of the churches, the conservative churches that I went to, and I saw the churches double down um, in a lot of the areas in which I believe they are wrong. Um, and I was a part of those churches, and so I was doubling down as well. And I just saw the church shift in this direction, just becoming increasingly unchristlike. Um, and around this time, I remember a friend sharing with me of various amount of articles, books, podcasts, videos, um, just challenging like some of the beliefs that I had held as an evangelical. Um, I remember the first thing that he had shared with me was about the rapture, which I went to very conservative churches and was always touched on the rapture, um, that you did not want to be caught doing something you should not be doing when Jesus came back, because <laughs> then you weren't going to get in, um, and about the mark of the beast and the vaccines and everything. Um, and uh, I remember when my friend shared with me this article, I was like, oh, well, I shouldn't even read it. You know what? I'm going to read it because I know I'm right and I know he's wrong. And I'm going to prove that I'm right by reading this article and I'll be able to tell him why he's wrong. So uh, I, I gave in. I read this article and it absolutely blew my mind because very quickly I could tell I was wrong. Um, I learned that the rapture theology that we have today is less than 200 years old. It was invented by a man. Uh, in the late 1800s, John Nelson Darby, he basically just misinterpreted the book of Revelation. And for me, that was just completely eye-opening. And um, my friend had also shared some other articles about you know, uh, LGBTQ discrimination in the church um, and how you know, there's been a various amount of uh, seemingly intentional mistranslations that would lead people to uh, discriminate, against, discriminate against those groups. And, uh, and then also, I remember uh, actually going, oh, shoot, maybe evolution is real and humans didn't coexist with dinosaurs on a 10,000-year-old Earth. Because the church I grew up going to, um, literally as soon as you walked in the doors, to the right, they had this giant exhibit um, dedicated to debunking evolution. Um, and like it had like a pictures of like humans like petting stegosauruses and stuff. So anyways. <laughs> Um, so, anyways, I, I came to this place where I recognized the church was objectively wrong about, like, a great deal of things, um, and they just doubled down. They didn't admit any sort of mistake, um, and I, I, I then realized that the churches that I was going to, their main mission wasn't necessarily to push us to live in a more Christ-like manner. It was about having us assemble and maintain the correct beliefs 
and we, you know we were handed this certainty and we were told you know you can't deviate away from this um, at, at all even a little bit and so in, of course in order to do that in order to protect that faith um, and not deviate away from it even when you're being presented with information that tells you that you know hey you might be a bit wrong in these areas um, in order to do that you must deny a lot of science a lot of verifiable facts and history um, and most destructively you have to also deny a lot of people of their humanity oh man again a lot of us really resonate with that also side note james and i grew up in the same calvary chapel system right in orange county right oh, I grew, yeah. not the same one okay yeah. but i i resonate a lot with a lot of what you share <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have a stegosaurus though in the front that was wasn't a, something Calvary we Chapel had. Calvary Chapel Oceanside. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they had the money for it. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Wow. So that happened, and you started deconstructing. It sounds like, and uh, there, you know, it probably was pretty lonely, especially in 2016, to go through that process. Oh, yeah. Uh, but then you're starting to find new faith communities that are doing something a little different. And so I would assume that you found something in Safe Harbor, and that's why you keep coming back. But we have this book group, right? Yes, yes. And I love to hear okay. about your experience in the book group and how that's connected to all this. Definitely. Okay, so, yeah, I, I had come to this place where I was, I, I, I felt like I couldn't go back to the churches in which I was previously in. Um, I had deconstructed, um, but I could never let go of this fascination I had of Jesus and the way that he lived his life. Um, but I did come to the conclusion that the Bible wasn't completely inerrant. And so with book club, um, we've had so many amazing conversations because the book is essentially about how to approach the Bible. And so we've had amazing conversations around, you know, the life of Jesus and how to approach the Bible, um, especially if it's not inerrant. Um, and yeah, I just, it's, it's really wild. I think one of the biggest takeaways I've had from it is just learning that, you know, the same book that has historically been used to oppress a lot of people, whoops, um, can be, when viewed through the lens of like the life of Jesus, can actually be extraordinarily empowering to the poor, the abused, and other members of marginalized society, or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. That's uh, the book group. Are, we're actually reading the book inspired by Rachel Holt Evans, and I believe City Church is also reading that. I found that out last week. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, and, I do have yeah. a quote from it too. Yeah, read the quote. Yeah, read okay, the quote. okay. I had a quote. I forget who it was. I think it was Avery who shared this one. But um, yeah. so, okay, yeah. So I went through the, the uh, sorry the discussion notes, and it says the Bible is not stagnant. You can see God nudging His people further towards equality, towards love and forgiveness and i remember during the conversation that we had around this quote um someone pointed out in leviticus where it says you know eye for an eye tooth for a tooth and that jesus actually hundreds of years later uh referenced that and um yeah he referenced it and he said okay here we go you have heard it said eye for an eye tooth for a tooth but i say to you do not resist an evil person if anybody slaps your right cheek you turn the left cheek to them also. And so it seems like he's pushing us further um, than even what, you know, earlier in the Bible, what it commands of us. Yeah, I, we, we see that a lot in scripture. We see Jesus going ahead and uh, ch changing things up a little bit, or taking what we know. So maybe like Asaph, what Asaph knows, the older brother knows, and moving on and saying something, you know, taking it up a notch and saying, actually, here's another way to love. <laughs> That's really good, James. Okay, one more thing. I want to hear, so aside from shock, aside from Safe Harbor, what is something in your life, right? Or what is something that has um, been really powerful? Like how, 
really powerful in terms of your deconstruction journey, something outside. Of, Definitely. Yeah. Okay, so um, with a lot of the churches that I grew up in, very, very fear-based, very, very uh, guilt-based as well, and um, especially when things really exaggerated politically, you were kind of taught to fear um, immigrants. And right now I work for Jack Daniels. <laughs> um, and so I go to a lot of different liquor stores um, throughout Orange County. And uh, most of the owners of these liquor stores are Syrians and uh, Syrian, refugee, Syrian refugees. Um, and usually they're a lot older than I am. And there's like a very thick language barrier uh, that can be difficult. But um, on this one particular week, this was a few weeks back, um, one of the sons was there. And he was about my age, and um, you know he speak, spoke really well, uh, spoke English very well. I don't, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, we just got to talking, and like he was a really really nice guy, and uh, we ended up talking about the Ukraine crisis because that had just begun, um, and he was telling me he was really really happy that Ukrainians were getting the support that they needed. Um, and that he really felt terrible for them, and that he was really happy to see them um, get accepted by all these other European countries um, and, you know, not get turned away. And then he told me, you know, as I, like, asked him some questions, he told me that he couldn't help but feel, you know, a bit sad because he did not face the same treatment coming from Syria. Uh, he said, like, nobody wanted him. Um, and I even remember in those times, um, like my pastor, like preaching from the pulpit, you know, like, oh, you know, we could only love, uh, you know, our immigrants if they come here the right way. Um, and I don't know, it was just, it was just really wild to have this experience with this man who was so loving and so kind. And, yeah. you know, he shared with me like that nobody wanted him, that he had to come here um, I think he was a freshman in high school, and so he had to learn English while also completing high school. Wow. Um, and that people would call him, you know, terrorist and really awful things, um, and that he's happy that he actually was able to leave because the area in which he lived got bombed. Um, so, yeah, and he, he shared a little bit about him and his family that um, it was really hard for his family, especially, I think his father, it was either his father or his uncle, it was especially hard for him because he was a doctor in Syria. And so he had to come over here and become a cashier. Um, and that was, that was incredibly difficult for him and for his pride. Um, but at the end of it, all he shared with me, he's like, you know, I'm not mad at like any of these people, you know, um, they were like raised to kind of hate us and I can't blame them. And I just think it's really, really wild how this man, who, who's not even a Christian, um, went through so much persecution, and he just has this Christ-like love and forgiveness for the very people, for the very country that you know treated him so poorly. All right, we can go home. Uh, no, that was... Oh, thank you so much, James, for sharing. I... Um, yeah, I, 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 there are no words for the experience that your your friend, <laughs> your new friend, uh, yeah. has gone through, <laughs> and the, just the fact that he has radical compassion yeah. for people who have harmed him and done him wrong is just beyond, and it feels very, like, very divine, right? Even though this person doesn't claim to be a Christian, it has a form of Christ, you know, there's a Christ element to it, and that's yeah. very powerful. <laughs> well, James, thank you so much for sharing. You're free to go. <laughs> you are free. We really appreciate you. Man. So, yeah, I can't help but think about how, you know, James 
as you were talking, you started out sharing how, yeah, I, I, I felt like I knew everything, right? He was oriented in his faith. And then suddenly there was this disorientation. You started real, realizing that the stegosaurus in the front of your church was probably not the best thing to have in a church, right? And, and then, you know, you get to this place where it's very lonely. It's very lonely to deconstruct. And then you shared how, you know, but actually, uh, it's been really powerful to be able to do it in community, right? To do it through book club, to be able to see Christ in people that aren't Christian is such a big deal. Like to see how God works with people who don't identify as Christians is super powerful. As a Syrian refugee, that's kind of wild, right? And so I really do think that liberation starts with us disorienting together. That this isn't something we're supposed to do alone. I talked about earlier how I developed this elitist mentality because I was doing it alone, right? I was feeling alone in it. And so to have spaces like City Church, to have spaces like Safe Harbor, to be able to do this is super, super important. And you know what? I think this displaying of radical compassion to one another, as we saw through uh, James's friend who's a Syrian refugee, is really it. I really think that's it. Once we, you know, once we get to a place of displaying radical compassion to one another, I think that's where we start to heal, especially in our deconstruction. And so I think uh, I, I wanted to, to bring, this is from uh, Maddie Spangler, who's in our group. She calls this um, seeing the intrinsic worth in all people, seeing everyone's worthiness. That is the goal of deconstruction. That is the goal of liberation. And I think that's what we see in the father when the prodigal son arrives. And I think as older brothers and Asaphs, I think, and as people that deconstruct or have deconstructed, I think that's our goal right there. That's our purpose, is to see, have radical compassion for one another. To be able to call it injustice while still having radical compassion and seeing humanity in people. And that's a hard thing for me to swallow. That's a really radical idea. So friends, I think radical compassion is liberation. And I think this is the gospel. I really do. I think radical compassion being liberation is the gospel. And I think that's the purpose of this disorientating.